You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, church, just this past week, I, uh, for a, a class that I was taking, I, I had to kind of write out a, a little bit of my spiritual journey uh, as, as a Christ follower. And so as I was going through it, I was trying to think through kind of big movements in my life as a Christ follower. And so if you've been here before, you've heard me say that, that life is a movement for all of us. It's not static, right? We're always moving towards something and we're always moving away from something. And so for, for us as Christ followers, the hope is that our entire life is us moving towards the Lord, being drawn towards Him. And so as I was recounting this, there, there were a couple of moments that stuck out in my, my life of following Jesus, of knowing Him, uh, that, that just made it apparent that these were, were formative, that my life wouldn't look like it, it does right now with, without these moments. And there was one really key theme, and it was that in each of these key moments, my life changed because of a deeper experience of coming to know Jesus. So, so one of those took place back in, in 2011, and it was uh, a year after the Lord had moved Rachel and I up to the Chicagoland area, a year after He had kind of plugged us into a brand new church plant, and, and I was in the middle of reading a book by a man named J.I. Packer called Knowing God. I'm pretty sure that Pastor Adam actually had loaned me this book, if I remember correctly. And so I began reading this book, and this book at its core, it's kind of a, a theological treatise of, of who God is, right? It explores kind of the depths of, of who God is, what Scripture says about God, the doctrinal truths that we believe about God. But as much as it's kind of a, a theological book, Packer wrote the book with the intention of, of drawing people into the presence of God of giving them a deeper experience of the Lord. And in the beginning of this book, he tells this story of an interaction he had with a colleague. This colleague was, was in the, the middle of just a really terrible moment in his life. He had just lost his job. Um, things appeared to be unraveling. And as J.I. Packer was speaking to him, this colleague gave him a, a really odd answer when he asked him, are you okay in the midst of this? The colleague said this. He said, I'm okay because in this I have known God. Packer, after reflecting on this bold statement from his colleague, he, he wrote these words. Not many of us, I think, would ever naturally say that we have really, truly, deeply known God. The words simply imply a definiteness and a matter-of-factness of experience to which most of us, if we're being honest, we feel like strangers to. We claim, for sure, to have a testimony. Uh, we can rattle off our conversion story with the best of them. We say that we know God. This, after all, is what evangelicals are expected to say. But would it actually to occur to us, without hesitation, 
and with reference to a particular event in our personal history that has been difficult, unimaginable, to say that in the midst of it we have really, truly known God. I doubt it, for I suspect suspect that for most of us, experience of God has oftentimes never been quite so vivid as that. I remember reading that story and asking myself the question, if I, with utter boldness and confidence, not just in good moments, but in difficult moments, could say to someone, without equivocation, it's okay because in the midst of this, I have known the Lord. This week, we are continuing on in in just a short sermon series on the mission and vision of, quite honestly, the church, the entire church, the global church, but also this church, Mercy's Door, this local body of believers. And we said last week that the mission of the church is to be disciples who make disciples, That's not our clever wording that comes directly out of Matthew chapter 28. It is the commission that Jesus gives to the church. That for those disciples gathered there, he tells these disciples to go therefore and make more disciples. And and we said in asking the question, what does it look like to be a disciple that makes disciples? We identified three rhythms that Jesus gives to his disciples. And those rhythms are knowing Christ, believing the gospel, and loving people. Today, we're looking at that first rhythm, knowing Christ. We're going to look at this passage in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 to 11, that Paul gives to us. This account that Paul describes for us of the beauty, of the need, of the depth, of the importance of knowing Christ. So just to catch you up on where we are in this letter to the church in Philippi, Paul has just gotten done describing to the church his own personal accomplishments. He's been discussing with them a group of people that have tried to convince the church in Philippi that as much as Jesus is important, their own self-righteousness Their own adherence to the law is just as important. And Paul says, listen, if anyone has reason to boast in religious observances of their heritage, in the people of God, it's me. But he says in this passage that he would give it all up, give it all over. That he would give away all that he is, all that he's achieved, all of his hopes, all of his plans, all of his dreams for One thing. What's that one thing? Paul says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Paul says that there is one thing that is ultimate and it is to know Christ. And so this morning, here's what I want us to ask. How do we know Christ? If it requires us, in order to be a disciple that makes disciples, to truly know Christ Jesus, 
If, if J.I. Packer would say that most of us in our Christian life will struggle to be able to confidently say that we really, truly know the Lord, then how do we do it? And Paul, in this passage, gives us three types of knowledge, if you will, concerning Christ Jesus. These are the three types of knowledge that I want us to walk through. One, a saving knowledge of Christ. Two, an intimate knowledge of Christ. And three, an experiential knowledge of Christ. Let's look at all of them because quite honestly, church, we need them all. Let's start with a saving knowledge of Christ. Uh, Throughout the entire story of Scripture, if you start to read from Genesis all the way to where we are now in Philippians, you'll find that people first come and meet the Lord primarily out of their need to be saved. If you were to kind of just jot down the amount of times we use the word neediness this morning, even as we've gathered together, you'd, you'd get to at least double digits. And part of that is that people come to the Lord when they come to the ends of themselves. Right? In our big expanded mission statement that we have on our website, it's that we exist as a church to be disciples who make disciples by, and the very first statement is declaring our need for a Savior that has been fully met in Christ Jesus. Right? People don't come to the Lord unless they believe they need the Lord. And when they find out they need the Lord, it's in the midst of that that the Lord shows up. Think just for a moment of the story of Israel in captivity in Egypt. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, they've been there for almost 400 years, and you read very bit about Israel interacting with, worshiping, even praying to the Lord that led them into Egypt. Until things get so bad, captivity is so horrendous, the slavery and servitude that they put in is so oppressing that we read that they finally cry out to the Lord, and then what happens? The Lord hears their cries, and He responds. Right Later on down the line, after Israel has been led into the promised land, after the nation splits into Judah in the south, and Israel in the north, and they go into captivity, they forget about the Lord until, again, the captivity, the isolation has become so intense, so difficult, that they finally cry out to the Lord, and then... The Lord responds. People come to the Lord when they come to the end of themselves, when they need saving. And Paul, likewise, even as he discusses, this is the Apostle Paul, as he discusses his need to know the Lord, he culminates it, look at it, in the end of verse 11, with his need to be saved. He says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Or another way to translate that is he says, I desperately need to be saved from the effects of my sin. To find victory over death. To have the resurrection that is promised in Christ Jesus. And so let me, let me give you a softball Sunday school question for two seconds. For all of you that have been in the church before, right? How are we saved? This is rhetorical. You don't have to shout it out, mainly because if you say it incorrectly, then it just gets awkward between you and I in the midst of the sermon. But think for two seconds. 
How are we saved? Now, for most of you, that's probably an easy answer, right? Some of you, or most of you, maybe had a response that sounded like, we believe the gospel, right? We are saved by faith, true. We are saved by believing the gospel, true. But what if I told you it's more than that? Not more as in more you have to do, but that it's more in-depth, or maybe it's more personal than that. What if I told you that you're not saved primarily by having right belief or doctrine, but that you're saved by Christ, by knowing Him, and by belonging to Him? Listen to these words from Jesus if you don't believe me. Here's Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says this day, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? And Jesus says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is John 10. Again, Jesus says to his disciples and followers, He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep, is referring to himself. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him. Why? Because they know his voice. He goes on, and he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, he sees a wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He, the hired hand, flees because he is a hired hand. He cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own and they know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then finally, this is John 17, what's called the high priestly prayer. The culminating prayer that Jesus prays to the Father before his crucifixion. It says this, when Jesus had spoken these words at the end of the prayer, he lifts up his eyes to heaven and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh in order to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. Listen close. He tells us that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Why is knowing Christ so essential? Well, in the beginning, to know Christ, to belong to him, means to be saved by him. You can have a notional belief in the gospel. You can affirm all sorts of right doctrine. But if you do not know Him, if you do not belong to Him, then we are not saved by Him. So what does this saving knowledge of Christ look like? Well, Paul tells us here, and quite honestly tells us in other places, to know Christ, to have a saving knowledge of Christ looks like two things. To know Him as Lord and to know Him as our righteousness. 
Look at verse 8 for just a moment. Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That word Lord in Greek is the word kyrios. It means master or owner or ruler or king. It's oftentimes used to describe God Himself. And Paul says, Jesus Christ is my Lord. To know Christ as Savior is to know Christ as Lord. And to know Christ as our Lord, our Master, our authority, our ruler, the author and perfecter of our faith. To know Christ as Lord is to know Him as Colossians 1 describes Him. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By Him all things were created in heaven and earth, invisible and visible thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn of all creation, of all the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell through Him to reconcile it to Himself all things, whether on earth, in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. We are saved by Him through faith as we come to know Him as Christ Jesus our Lord. Now why is this? Because you can't be saved by another version of Jesus that's not Lord. Because another version of Jesus doesn't exist. Jesus, who is simply the great teacher, doesn't exist. Jesus, who's simply a good guy, doesn't exist. Jesus, who only saves you but doesn't intend to continue to lead you, love you, sanctify you, and carry you home, doesn't exist. The only Jesus that exists is Christ Jesus the Lord. We know Him as Christ the Lord. We also know Him as our righteousness. Go on in verse 9. Paul says this, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. To know Christ, to be saved by Christ, is to take his righteousness as ours. It's to take what he's done and count it as ours. Paul conversely says all throughout Scripture that to cling to anything else, to build our life on any other hope, to believe that we have any other righteousness or standing is actually to be condemned. But to look to Christ is to be saved. Christ has atoned for our sin and given us His perfect righteousness. The knowledge of Christ, to know Christ truly, begins here. It begins with Christ as Savior, to know that He is Lord of all and as Lord of all has given Himself for us all. To know Christ begins with knowing Him as our Savior. But here, here's where I want to, to press in. 
Because oftentimes this is where the gospel stops, if we're just being honest, right? If you've walked in here today from the church, been a part of a church in the past, it's likely that nothing I've said to you so far is shocking. Most of you can nod along. Most of you would, if I asked the question, do you have a saving knowledge of Christ, most of you would nod yes. But this is where our knowledge of Christ begins, but it's not where a knowledge of Christ ends. Paul goes on to describe to us not just a saving knowledge of Christ, but an intimate knowledge of Christ. I want you to think for a moment about the words that Jesus uses to describe our relationship to him. Uh, Think of uh, the the times in the Gospels as Jesus speaks to describe what our relationship to him looks like. These are the words that, that came to my mind as I was prepping for this sermon. Jesus calls us to follow him, but Jesus also calls us to abide in him. He calls us to come to him, to rest with him, He even calls us to come and eat and drink of Him. Now here's why I go into that place. Those are really intense words. right? I want you to think for just a moment about your most intimate relationship. And so if if you're a kiddo here, maybe it's with another sibling, maybe it's with mom or dad. If you're here and you're uh, dating, maybe it's with a, a girlfriend, a boyfriend. If you're married, hopefully it's your spouse, husband or wife. Think for two seconds about your most intimate relationship. And I want you to, to ask the question, is it as intimate as saying that in that relationship you abide not just with them, but in them? That you rest in them? That you eat and drink of them. No one's nodding their head at the last one. Right? Like those are those are intensely intimate terms. Now let me ask the question for a second. If you're being honest, is your relationship, not your theoretical, Not your Sunday school answer, but your actual day-by-day relationship with Jesus. One, is it your most intimate relationship that you have? If it's not, then we know it doesn't ascend to what the Lord has called us and invited us into. And even if it is, I would ask the question, does your daily relationship with Him look like abiding in Him? Resting in Him, united to Him, even feasting upon Him. This is what Paul, uh, this is what Jesus calls us into, and it's what Paul says he desperately wants. Go back to verse 8 again. He says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for His sake. I have suffered the loss of all things. In fact, I count them as rubbish, as trash, as nothing. Why? In order that I may gain 
Christ and be found in him. Paul is, is rejoicing over a doctrine that we call our union with Christ. Maybe you've never heard of it called that. Uh, maybe you have. But this is a doctrine that is essential to our lives as Christ followers. It means that in light of Christ Jesus and what he's done on the cross because of his life, death, and resurrection, that we are no longer our own, but we belong to Christ. And as a matter of fact, when the Lord sees us, he no longer just sees us, but he sees us in Christ and Christ in us. Right? The Bible says that when a man and a woman marries, two become one flesh. When Jesus saves us, we are united to him like that. It's why the scriptures, when they describe our relationship, especially in the New Testament, to Jesus, there's always this, this little phrase that's used, in Christ. Scripture says that we are crucified in Christ, that we are buried in and with Christ. We are baptized into Him and in His death. We are united to Him in His resurrection. We are seated with Him. He dwells in us. The church is His body. Christ is in us. We are in Him, and the Christ is one flesh with the church. Is that enough? I, I, got, I got like 50 more. I can go on. Okay? It's, 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 not, it's not a doctrine that like, we just kind of stumble upon. It is how we are characterized in our relationship. We are one with Jesus bodily, spiritually, eternally. So here's what that practically means for us. It means that Jesus is always with us. Right? We read last week in the Great Commission, Jesus gives this momentous commission to the disciples. Go into all the earth and make disciples. Right? He gives that commission to 11 men who days earlier, in his greatest hour of need, scattered, were so afraid of their own life, their leader denied even knowing Jesus. And now Jesus tells them, hey, it's on you to go and make disciples of the entire world. But why is there comfort in the midst of that commission? It's because of how he ends it. And behold, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus promises that, and then he fulfills that promise days later at Pentecost when he sends His Holy Spirit that indwells us now. Right, I remember a number of years ago, uh, before we planted here, I was preaching, uh, we were preaching uh, through the book of Exodus, and, and I was preaching on the, the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. Right, as, as, as the Lord led Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness, He gave them this great sign to show them that His presence was near them. And the sign was a ginormous tornado of fire. Can't miss it, right? No matter where they went, there was always a tornado of cloud during the day and fire during the night to show them that the presence of the Lord was there. And as I was preparing to, to preach this, what, what came to my mind was that pillar was there, we're told, until they get to the promised land. So here's the mind-blowing thing. 
when the Israelites were taking gold and creating for themselves a giant golden calf that they bowed down to worship, in the background while they were worshiping the golden calf was like a tornado of fire signifying the presence of the Lord. And I remember going like, what? Like, this was my immediate reaction. If I had something so substantial in my life that reminded me of the presence of the Lord, like a tornado of fire, I'd always trust Him. I'd always follow Him. I'd always worship Him. And then, a greater presence, known as the Holy Spirit, kind of lovingly slapped me beside the face and said, yeah, you have the presence of the Lord not near you outside the camp, but inside of you. Right? Like this is the depth and the magnitude of what it means to be united to Christ. Like if you think that having a tornado signifying the Lord would be a big thing, you have something far greater. Which means there's never a moment that we are without Him. And so, what does it mean to know the Lord intimately? It means that we rejoice in and we gratefully engage the constant presence of Christ Jesus in our life, moment by moment by moment. It means that there's no areas of your life that Jesus does not make His way into. You don't have sacred areas of your life and secular areas of your life. Why? Because you always have the presence of Christ Jesus within you. Married couples, that means your marriage is a sacred space. When you are arguing with your spouse, that's a sacred space that Christ Jesus intends to be a part of. Married couples, your love life is a sacred space that Christ Jesus intends to be a part of. When you're parenting your kids, it's a sacred space. Your plans for your career, a sacred space that Christ Jesus is a part of. Your finances, a sacred space. Your careers, your hobbies, your hopes and plans, your failures, your sins, and your addictions are all sacred spaces that Christ Jesus is a part of. I preached a couple of months ago at a, a sister church of ours, and I was recalling the story of Adam and Eve in, in Genesis chapter 3 in the fall. And what struck me as I was going back through the story is in Genesis 1 and 2, the, the main character is the Lord. He's speaking, he's creating, and then it shifts to Genesis 3, and we're told that there is Eve and Adam and the serpent. And it's written as if in that moment, like the Lord is no longer present. But He was. Because the Garden of Eden was His garden. It's where His presence dwelled. But for the first time in all of humanity, in the history of the world, His creation acted as if He wasn't there. And it resulted in death. Like, here's why I tell you that, church. We live again in a place like the Garden of Eden where the presence of the Lord is always with us. And so even in the midst of temptation, He is there. 
Could you imagine if Eve, when the serpent tempted her, and he said, you will surely not die, it will all go great, if she would have said, hold on for a second. Hey God, what do you think about this? But it didn't happen. And yet now the Lord invites us to know him in that way, in every area of our life. It means we engage him in spiritual disciplines as a method to enjoy him, not to get his presence. Spiritual disciplines, prayer, reading his word, fasting, silence, solitude, worship, are ways that we enjoy his presence. They are not what we do in order to get his presence. It means we prioritize the Lord himself over the things the Lord will give us. He's the big gift at the end of all this. Not what He gives us. And finally, and I think this is the hardest one for the church, it means we create space to actually hear from Him. How many times have your prayers sounded like my prayers, which is this? God, I need, I need you to give me wisdom. I need you to speak to me. I need you to know. I need you to tell me which way to go. I've got this thing in front of me. I don't know what, what, what to do. It's a really big decision. I need you to speak to me. Okay, thank you very much. Amen. You know what I didn't do there? Listen. God, speak to me. All right, got to go turn on the TV now. If He's with us, we create space to be with Him to listen to Him, that He might correct us, encourage us, convict us, heal us, bring us rest and peace. Here's a simple test. How much time do you spend being with the Lord versus doing things of the Lord or doing things for the Lord? I was in a cohort this past summer that honestly was one of those big moments in my life as a Christ follower. And the guy that led it was asking me about some of my spiritual disciplines, and I talked to him about how important it is in my life to preach the gospel to myself. We'll talk about this specifically next week, to, to remind myself of what is true because of Jesus, who I am in light of Jesus, and that I, I need to just constantly be preaching the gospel to myself. And he looked at me, and he said, Michael, that is great and it's lacking. And I was like, well, she thinks. He looked at me and he said, preaching the gospel to yourself is so important. And he said, but can I tell you what I want for you? I said, what's that? And he looked at me, and I will forever, I think, for the rest of my life remember these words. He looked at me and he said, I would much rather you have your heavenly father preach the gospel to you. And it slayed me in that moment. Because you know what? I can write the voice of me off every day. I lie to myself all the time. I look in the mirror and I go, yeah, you know what, Michael? I think you have lost a little bit of weight. No, that shirt looks good on you. Yeah, no, they really did enjoy that sermon. Why are you laughing at that? <laughs> but you know whose voice I can't write off? the creator of the universe. What we need is to hear from him and be with him. A saving knowledge, 
of Christ, an intimate knowledge of Christ, and an experiential knowledge of Christ. A couple years ago, Rachel and I were talking about um, a, a vacation. We had long kind of said, like, man, we'd love to just take a, a, a vacation, the two of us, and, and like fly over to England and take trains all the way down to Italy and then fly back. And, and so we had started looking into that. And, uh, and at some point in time, Rachel said, hey, what about if rather than doing that, what if we saved up for a vacation to Israel? And I was like, oh, that'd be, that'd be kind of cool, I think, maybe, I don't know. And uh, so what I do in those moments is like, I'm like, I fixate. And so if you tell me you're looking to buy a car, I'll spend the next 48 hours researching all the cars in the area for you. And so I was immediately like, fantastic, we're going to plan this all out. I'm going to get the trip scheduled. And, uh, and so I started looking at different companies that, that, that did trips and tours through Israel. And one of them had this video. And it was not very professionally made. It looked like it was shot on somebody's iPhone. But the crazy part was they, they had pictures of and videos of the Jordan River and the hillside next to the Sea of Galilee and the remains of the town of Capernaum and the, the hills outside of Jerusalem where Christ was crucified. And all I could think in that moment was, Jesus walked there. Like God in human's flesh, his feet touched that ground. Listen, as, as humans, it's right for us to desire to experience not a history of Jesus, but to actually experience him. Right? It, 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 we're told in the book of Revelation that, that this is what all of this culminates in. As much as we're excited about the new heavens and earth where there's no more tears and no more sickness and no more death, the big culmination of that passage is, and God will dwell with man. That everything culminates in us actually experiencing physically, bodily, in life, Christ Jesus, God himself, face to face. And Paul says... He wants to know Christ in a way that he actually experiences him. But the truth is, how he tells us to do it is not what we're going to like. Here's the answer to how we experience Christ Jesus. It's in verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Love that. Big fan of resurrection. Except for the fact, what does resurrection require first? And may share his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Knowing Christ is to know his resurrection, and to know his resurrection is to know his suffering and his death. I read a, a book this past year called On Death. Uh, the book was just talking about uh, our, our culture's fear of death. And one of the reasons he said our culture specifically feel, fears death is because death is not a part of our lives anymore. That up until the past couple of generations, most people passed away at home. Most births took place even at home. And so we saw life from birth through death. 
And he said there, there's something that we miss out on when we don't walk with people all the way through their lives, including suffering and death. That there is something unique that we experience in, in, in people's last days and months where we see a, a unique, authentic, no hiding part of them. That we experience the fullness of who they are. I've oftentimes said, if you want a, a close relationship, go through suffering with someone. Because you'll know them and they will know you like you could not otherwise know them. And the same is true for our relationship with Christ Jesus. We're told he was a man of sorrow. That from his first days on earth, his life was heading towards a cross. Jesus has what we might describe as a resurrection-shaped life. It began and it headed towards the cross and death. And only after death did it ascend to the right hand of the Father to glory unimaginable. And so to know Christ Jesus is to live with Him in a life that includes suffering, includes death. Now, does this mean we run out and we go, all right, bring on the suffering, Jesus. Can't wait for a terrible day tomorrow. No. But what it does mean is that we open our hands up to the Lord and we say, my hope is not to retain this life, but to attain a new life that you will give to me. That I am willing to give away my plans, my dreams, my hopes, my comfort, even my life if you require it, because to lose this life is to gain a better life in you, Christ Jesus. In that same cohort that I walked through, the leader of it said to know Jesus is to walk with Jesus. And to walk with Jesus means to walk in the pace of Jesus and to walk through the spaces of Jesus. You want to know the places and spaces that Jesus walked through? Look at the Beatitudes. Who was His kingdom? The poor in spirit. Those that hungered and thirsted for righteousness. Those who mourned, those who needed mercy, those who were persecuted for his sake. To open our hands up to even be led into suffering or death is actually for us to experience Jesus. And here's the hard part for us I think if we're being honest, most of the goals of our entire lives is to not have to walk through suffering. And so part of what that means, when we get our really nice houses with our comfortable bank accounts, right, and we have like uh, the pool that only is inside of our subdivision, so we only interact with people that look like us, and if I don't want to, I can drive into my garage and shut the garage door before I get out of my car so I don't have to interact with my neighbors. Like part of what that does is we say to the Lord, I don't want to experience Jesus in that way. 
I don't want to experience him going to the least of these. I don't want to experience him loving the unlovable. I don't want to experience him in persecution. I don't want to experience him in discomfort. I don't want to experience him in suffering. I don't want to experience him in counting the next life, the life that the Father gives to us as better than this life. And Paul says to know Christ, to experience him, is to know him even in his suffering and his death. Church, this is knowing Christ. We know Him as our Savior. We know Him intimately when we experience Him, even in His suffering and His death. But this isn't a checklist of Paul. This is the Apostle writing Holy Scripture, telling us that every day that he wakes up, he wakes up with a desperation and a hunger to once again know Christ more. Every day, the Apostle Paul, writing the infallible Word of God, needed to again know Christ, and so do we. Nothing else goes until we know Christ. There is no believing the Gospel without knowing Christ. There is no loving people without knowing Christ. You can't be a follower of Christ if you don't know Christ. You can't lead others to Christ if you don't know Christ. Let me end and give you this thought to to take away. The last couple weeks I've been doing premarital counseling and and we've been talking uh, not just about kind of who they are as a couple, but we've also been walking through the the wedding ceremony itself and talking about the importance of the different moments throughout the wedding ceremony. One of my favorite moments of any wedding that I do comes at the very beginning, and it's when the bride walks down the aisle. But it's not the bride, and it's not the groom. My favorite moment is when the bride gets to the end of the aisle, and the father takes her hand, and he places it in the hand of the groom. I remember as we talked about this just the last week that I described to them that before they are joined together, their hands are placed together, they need to be joined together with Christ. Discipleship, knowing Christ, is having your hand forever placed into the hand of Christ Jesus knowing that every day he holds that hand, that every day's like a bride stares into the eyes of her groom, we look into the face of Jesus. And if you want to know what discipleship is when it comes to knowing Christ, it's you not teaching other people about Jesus. It's not you teaching other people to obey Jesus. It's you taking their hand, and placing their hand into the hand of Christ Jesus. Of telling them, of leading them, of walking with them as you know Christ Jesus and they come to know Him as well. Church, hear this. Nothing is greater. Nothing is better, and quite honestly, nothing is more important in your life now and forevermore than that you and I, by the grace of God, might know 
Christ Jesus. Pray with me.